Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, verses 26 through 32. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, as we see this beautiful song that this elderly man sang, that the great gift that you have given him, the great treasure that he holds in his arms. Lord, may we recognize where our treasure really is. May we understand that salvation and your glory and your light more valuable than anything we can possess in this world. And that those who don't know you, those who don't have that treasure, will seek diligently to find it. And those who do know, who do have it, that they will appreciate it and live their lives in that appreciation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a scene from a movie that I have in my mind, and it's not important that you've seen the movie. It's not the world's best movie, but there's a scene that was in it, nonetheless, that it just typifies what I want to start out saying this morning. The movie was National Treasure several years back, Um, and without going into the plot, basically it was a group of young people, for the most part, seeking a great magnificent treasure. In fact, it was Solomon's treasure after passing through several hands. And they had these clues, and the whole story was a sleuth about how they could find this treasure. And of course, there are some bad guys who are trying to get the treasure at the same time. But the particular scene that I have in my mind is when they actually found it. It was buried deep under a church in New York City in a cavernous room, a big, like a huge cavern of cave that was there. Now, when they found it, of course, it was pitch black. You you couldn't see anything, but there was some kind of ancient lighting mechanism that they lit, but you could watch it as one section of that room after another became lit, and there was the most magnificent treasure anyone could imagine. I mean, there was gold and silver and diamonds and rubies and and priceless pieces of art. There were the original manuscripts of the Bible from the library in Alexandria. I mean, there was knowledge, power, glory, wealth, everything that was in that room. And the, the camera looks at the, it was actually four of them by this time, looks at them and they have these looks of absolute awe on their faces. In fact, one of them starts crying because it was so vast and and it was everything that everyone on earth wants. I mean, everything was there and it was theirs for the taking. Well, this morning I want to see if I can counteract that. I want to introduce you to another treasure, a treasure far greater. And I want to convince you that even though it is not the wealth of this world, 
that there's no greater wealth than you can have than to have Simeon's treasure. I want you to imagine an old man standing in one of the courtyards of the temple. People are whizzing by all around, very busy in that particular place, and this old man holds in his arms, cradling a, a non-assuming Hebrew child. Looks like any other Hebrew child. Nothing special about it. No lights glowing. Not, nothing about this. And so therefore, no one else recognizes this, but if you look upon that old man's face, there's a trembling emotion in him as he cradles that child and he looks upon him at long last as if he were the most valuable treasure on earth. As if he was a diamond or gold or silver or whatever we consider to be a true treasure. He was looking upon that child with those eyes. And like I said, my purpose this morning is to convince you if you're not already convinced that Simeon's treasure is the greatest treasure that has ever been granted and gifted to humankind. Now, as you know, we're in Luke and we're making our way through his nativity story. And in this particular part of the story, there's been a little bit of a lull, if you will. If you remember, well, we started out with, uh, with uh, talking about Jesus, and the angels came and said that the Jesus was coming, and we heard from Mary, we heard from Zechariah, we saw the baptism of John the Baptist, and then the incarnation, and we saw the heavens open, and angels come down, and glory shine all around. And then, as if Luke really has an intention, he sort of put the brakes on. Uh, as I said um, last week, you know, you would think for him, he would go directly into the ministry of Christ, but he didn't. He first showed us some of the Old Testament faithfulness of Joseph and Mary, circumcision for Jesus, purification for Mary, dedication for Jesus. That's why they're in the temple. But then he began to introduce us to a couple of Old Testament saints. Now, we've already seen Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary. But last week, we talked about Simeon. A, a, a lay person. And we notice that he was defined to us in extraordinary language. First of all, he was an extraordinary saint. There was a behold before his name. Secondly, he was a righteous man. He believed God to the point that it was credited to him as righteousness, even in an Old Testament context. He was a uh, a devout man, and we talked about what it meant to be devout. He had a healthy fear of God and a reverence of worship. He was a faithful man because he was faithfully waiting for the consolation of Israel, and that's just another title for Christ now. It, it is God's reconciliation with Israel, with his people, and of course we're going to see it expand beyond Israel. And then finally, he was a man that was spirit-filled. We're going to see the spirit continue to work this morning. So let's jump into our text because I want to get to the song, the hymn. And I, I really want to take a close look at it because I think it is one of the most beautiful hymns in all of Scripture. So let's jump into the 26th verse. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
Now, what we're finding, we already talked about this last week. We actually talked about it a little bit more in the after church, that we as New Testament Christians, we tend to think that the Spirit was just sort of sleeping in the Old Testament and didn't really come alive until Pentecost. Well, he did come alive in a very special way at Pentecost, but he's very active in the Old Testament, and especially with this Messianic community, those who are looking faithfully for the consolation of Israel. We saw, for instance, that when um, Elizabeth met with Mary, that she was filled with the Holy Spirit, and even the child in her womb, John, leapt with joy at the stimulus of the Holy Spirit. When we saw um, uh, Zechariah begin his Benedictus, his great song, well, we noticed that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, Mary, when the conception occurred, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so here you see Simeon, who is being led and guided by the Holy Spirit. And so it shouldn't be anything unusual. Virtually every single member of this Messianic community, in some way or another has been involved with the Holy Spirit. Well, anyway, this is what the Holy Spirit told um, uh, Simeon. And it had been revealed to him. Now, we're not told how it was revealed, whether it was a vision, a dream, or audibly uh, uh, speaking. I'm gonna, I think we get a hint later on that it was probably audible. But he, he says that it had been real, revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, kind of central to my whole focus this morning is the fact that Simeon, when no one else in this temple is recognizing who this child is, Simeon recognizes the Messiah. Everybody in that temple Every single person who is there is looking for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. Of course, they have a different idea of who the Messiah is. But the only one who picked this peasant couple out of the crowd and their little Hebrew boy and says, here's the Lord, here's the Messiah. Well, there's, there's two that I know, at least that come to mind that did this. First of all, Simeon, we're talking about him here, but... John the Baptist. Do you remember John the Baptist did that? Jesus just walked up to him in the Jordan. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, the Spirit told me that the one upon whom the Spirit settled like a dove, it would be he. He would be the one who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, John the Baptist recognized Jesus. But I'm going to make a larger point of this in a moment. But let me go ahead and make it now. This is the greatest gift that anyone can have. This is part of the treasure, folks. The world has the same gospel before them that you do. And yet they just pass by as if they've heard nothing. They could care less about it. It doesn't get into them. They don't accept it. Simeon was able to pick out the Christ out of all the people in that, in that temple. Just like you when you heard the gospel, when you read the gospel. That Holy Spirit changed your heart and poured His glory upon your soul. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. That is the greatest gift. That is the greatest treasure to be saved by God Himself in that way. Uh, anyway, going on here. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when, uh, oh, let me go back to the 26th. I'm not through with that. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's 
Christ. That's the Lord's anointed that he's talking about. God's anointed. David talks about him back in the second psalm. The king of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Jesus is that anointed one. But notice the way that the Spirit talked to Simeon. You know, scholars find the funniest things to argue about. And one of the things they argue about is I'm telling you he's an old man. And, you know, an older man. A man on in years. Actually, I think he's a man who's ready to leave and it's just been hanging on until the Messiah comes. But... There's a whole group of scholars who say, no, 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 you, you can't pull that from the text. Well, I, I agree with you, but, but who speaks this way? Really? The, that that when, when the Holy Spirit reveals to him that he would not see death. I mean, that's not the kind of thing that you say to a young man, okay? Well, you're not going to die until this happens. Well, you've got 60, 70 more years to live. Uh, no, this, this gives us a hint that, that Simeon was on up there in years. Now, in the 27th verse, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Four things I want to point out in that first. First of all, he says that um, he came in the Spirit. Now, I don't think that Simeon is in the Spirit, like, for instance, the way that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the, on the island of Patmos when he had that great vision. I, I don't see him being in sort of a semi-trance here. Um, I, I, I see him in charge of all his faculties. So basically, the way I think that this means is rather than being in the Spirit in the way that it talks about John or others who are receiving that perfect revelation from God, I think it means that he was being guided by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the reason he was able to pick the child out of that whole crowd was because he was being guided by the Holy Spirit. The reason he was in that spot on that day so that he had that divine encounter with Joseph and Mary and the child was because the Holy Spirit was guiding him. Now, this encounter took place in the temple. And some of you know that there are two words in Greek for temple that are used in the New Testament, one, refers to the sanctuary, the beautiful building in which there's the holy place and the holy of holies and the implements of worship. Well, that's not the word that Luke uses here. The other word speaks of the entire complex because there's the central sanctuary and then there are courts around it. There's the court of priests and then there's the court of Jews and then there's the court of women. And then outside that is the vast court of Gentiles with the colonnades at the end. Well, this word for temple is the entire complex. Now, where were they in this complex? Well, more than likely, they are in what is known as the court of women. Because Mary is there, and she would not have been able to go beyond that into the court of the Jews. And, of course, only priests could go to the court of priests. And only the special priest could go actually into the sanctuary. The high priest, once a year at Yom Kippur, into the Holy of Holies. So, more than likely, they are in the court of women, which was also the treasury. That's where people came to, to, to make their tithes and to give their offerings. So it would be perfectly understandable that they would be there in the court of women, and it just so happens that that was one of the busiest courts in the whole temple. So there would have been a lot of people surrounding them when this event took place. 
Well, finally, I want you to see that, um, that, uh, that uh, let me see if I can find my place. Came in the spirit when the parents brought, oh yeah. Um, notice that Luke says, and the parents brought in the Christ. Well, once again, there's a lot of skeptics out there with too much time on their hands because there's a big argument about whether or not Luke... Now, the only reason I point this out to you when we pass by is I just want you to know two things. One, I want you to know where the skeptics are kneeling as far as where they're finding fault in the Scripture. And secondly, I want you to see how ridiculous it is. Because it's not an argument whatsoever. In other words, what they say here, and they'll say it again later on, is that, aha, Luke messed up. Luke tried to convince us that the, the Holy Spirit's the Father of Christ, but here he refers to Joseph and Mary as his parents. So therefore, he just made a little bit of a slip. How arrogant that is. I mean, I'm never, I'm always amazed by the arrogance of modern scholarship. No, it would be perfectly natural for them to refer to Joseph and Mary as the parents and later on Joseph as the father. And so when, when they came into um, the, 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 the temple, they came in to do things according to the law. Now, once again, here we go back to the Old Testament. We know that they're there in the temple for two reasons. Jesus has already been circumcised by the time they get there. But they're there for Mary's purification 40 days after the birth and Jesus' dedication because he was the firstborn. So they were there to fulfill all righteousness in an Old Testament context. And I know that I'm kind of pounding that into you. Uh, you know, you're going to get tired of hearing it. But I, I, Luke's pounding it into us. He's making it very clear, at least the way I see it, that we're bringing part of, not all of, but part of the Old Testament into the New Testament. It's the foundation upon which the church was built below the, the apostles and the cornerstone. Um, and, and the Old Testament saints are extremely important. So, therefore, he, he continues to remind us, and he's going to do the same thing in the next verse. Notice what it says in verse 28. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Okay, so here is that image I want you to see. I want you to see this elderly gentleman in this very busy place recognizing the Christ recognizing and apparently it, he must have looked decent enough for Mary to have handed over her baby but nonetheless cradling that child with trembling emotion knowing the nature of the treasure that he held in his arms and looking upon that child with fondness and with deep deep love knowing who he was knowing he was the fulfillment of what God had called or what God's um, plan for redemption actually was. So we see this tender, tender embrace, and at the same time, we notice that, that Simeon is having an encounter. He is having an encounter with the holy, with, with, I'm sorry, with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is upon him. He is in the spirit. The Spirit is guiding him, but the kingdom of heaven has come upon him. And what did Jesus tell us about the kingdom of heaven? He said that if you knew what it was, it would be like a treasure in a field. And you would find that treasure and you would sell everything you own so that you could possess that treasure. 
It was like a, a pearl of great worth. And if you realized how valuable it was, if you realized what it meant, then you would sell everything that you own. Nothing would be as important as the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. And now Simeon holds that treasure in his arms. Jesus is the treasure of the, of the kingdom of heaven. Well, he goes on and he blesses God. That's just another throwback to the Old Testament. So many of the hymns in the Old Testament start out with the words, Blessed be the Lord. Psalm 41, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Over and over and over again, you will find this blessing that takes place. Now, I don't want you to think that Simeon is imparting a blessing to God. You can't bless God. He's already blessed. He's the one who provides blessings. So that's what Simeon is doing. He's reflecting the blessing of God back to him. In other words, thank you, dear Lord. Praise you for what you have done. That's the kind of blessing that he has put forward. Well, then in the 79th verse, we get into the actual song itself. The song of Simeon. Sometimes people like to call this Simeon's swan song because he's departing. The actual name, you know, that the scholars tend to give each one of these songs names. This is the fifth of five. If you've been here, you know that Elizabeth was the first. Then there was Zechariah's Benedict. I'm sorry. Then there was Mary's Magnificat. Then there was Zechariah's Benedictus. Then it was the angels of heaven singing glory to God in the highest. And now the fifth hymn is Simeon's song. Simeon's hymn. And it is glorious. It is known as the Nunc Dimittis in Latin. And that's because the first two words in the Greek and in the Latin are now Dismiss. So it's actually, the song is called Now Dismiss. And, and I'm going to explain the significance of that. Just remember that the word now is in the place of emphasis right at the beginning of the um, sentence. But we're going to take this according to the English ordering of the words because I think it will be easier for you that way. So let's take a look at what he says. Look in first in the 29th verse. Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. That first word is hugely important, brothers and sisters, the word Lord. Now, typically, and many of you know this, the word Lord in Greek is the word kurios. And it can be used of divinity. It's quite often used of Christ. But it can also be used of of, of human masters, and sometimes it is even used as a polite address, something akin to sir. But that's not the word that Luke uses here or that Simeon uses. He uses a much less often used word for Lord. It's the word in Greek, despota. Now, you, you may pick out an English word in that word, despota, because that's where we get our word despot from. Now, I realize that a despot has a negative connotation in our culture. It talks about someone who has absolute sovereign supreme rule and usually abuses it, taking advantage of his subjects. But that's not the actual meaning of the word. That is implied and has become part of the word in our culture. The word despota 
means absolute, omnipotent, almighty, sovereign master of all things. Whose will is done without question. And all who are his subjects are completely and totally subservient to the will of the despota. In other words, he's talking about the holiness of God, the transcendence of God. That God who is above all others, the supreme God, El Elyon. Now, earlier, or last week, if you were here, we talked about Simeon's devoutness. And we talked about that word devout as being a word that spoke of fear, a healthy fear of God, a reverence of God in worship. And he's reflecting that now because he refers to God as despota in his prayer. Now there's another word that goes right along with that. In the Greek there's only a small pronoun separating the two of them. It's a little bit different in English. But along with the word despota goes the word doulos, which means, well, several different things. It can mean a servant, as it is translated here. It can mean a bond servant, as it is often translated in the epistles, talking about our voluntary giving up of our, uh, of our free will to Christ. But in this context, it means what the word actually means, slave. So, in essence, what Simeon is saying is Despota, you have dismissed your slave. Now, the significance of that is very central to understanding this song, and we'll come back to it later on, but that's how it starts out. Very, very important. Second word is now, okay? Now, now is often used just as a connector between thoughts. I use it all the time in my speech or in my writing. You know, okay, let me, now let me talk about it this way. It's just a, a, a sort of a conjunction between two thoughts. That's not the way it's used here. It is a definite, emphatic time marker. In other words, he is saying now, at long last, at this exact moment in redemptive history, when all the cogs of your redemptive plan come together and it is time for light to pierce the darkness at this moment in time, you have allowed your servant be dismissed that's where we get next we get into the 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 idea of departing when he says that you're letting your servant depart that word depart it means to dismiss it means to separate it can even mean to divorce there's a change in the relationship, if you will. Not a complete change, but there's a change in circumstances for the slave. Because the master, the despota, is allowing the slave to be dismissed. In other words, the slave is no longer a slave. I am giving you your freedom because I am dismissing you now. There's no doubt what Simeon's talking about when he says you have allowed your servant to depart in peace. He's talking about dying. He's talking about death. And this is another reason we think he's an elderly gentleman. It's almost as if he's been hanging on by a thread waiting for this fulfillment of the prophecy that the Holy Spirit had told him apparently audibly. 
that he would see the Christ before he died. Well, now I'm an old man, and now that I have seen the Christ, now I can depart in peace. I want you to notice something. Again, I know I'm throwing you lots of things just to notice and promising that I'll bring them about later on. I hope I do. But I just want you to notice the coming and the going here. Okay? Christ comes, the advent of the Christ, the salvation that is God, and Simeon leaves. The master frees the slave, and he leaves life into death. We're going to talk about that in sort of a reverse in a few minutes. Well, anyway, he goes on at the end of that. And, excuse me. I've got the driest mouth I can hardly swallow. Um, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, do him according to the law, he took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. The word word there is not the word logos. It doesn't mean the scriptures or the written word. It basically means that the Holy Spirit told him. It's a word that means verbally. And so the Holy Spirit told Simeon that he would not die until he had seen what, um, the, the Messiah. And the last thing I want to point out in that verse is that he says that you are allowing your servant to depart in peace. Now, what has to happen in a slave's life in order for he or she... To depart in peace. Oh, thank you. That would be helpful. Um, in order for him to depart in peace, or her to depart in peace, what has to happen in their life in order for that to happen? Well, there has to be a reconciliation. There has to be an agreement. There has to be a good relationship between them and the despota, the master. And so, therefore, what... Simeon is saying is, you have created a situation for me that allows me to now finally depart in peace. And it talks about the kind of peace that you would depart with, which is peace with God. Because after all, God is the despota. Excuse me. Thank you, Janet. Let's go on to the uh, 30th verse. For my eyes have seen your salvation. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Okay, what, what are Simeon's eyes seeing in reality? An, an unassuming Hebrew, Hebrew boy. <laughs> like any other Hebrew boy, he's looking at a child. And yet, through this, through this gift that he has been given, the gift of recognition of who this child is, he is able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, of course, we know the salvation is Jesus. We've been told that many times. Remember the shepherds when the angels came down and talked to the shepherds and they said, for unto you has been born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Do you remember what the angel said to Joseph when he told him about Mary? He says, you, you will, she will have a son and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Um, John used to talk about this in the, in the context of light and darkness. The light is coming into the world and the darkness, of course, will 
contend with it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay. So Simeon looks upon this child and he sees God's salvation. From what? He says, my eyes is in your salvation. I'm saved. Okay. I, I'm a slave to you, Lord, but now I am saved. Who's he saved from? The despota, folks. He understands the relationship. Remember his devoutness. He understands the relationship between himself and a holy God. He's probably just about at the top of the barrel as far as righteousness and goodness is concerned. But he is still a depraved, profane sinner in the eyes of God. And so therefore, because of the standards that the despoter requires, he is condemned completely unless he has a savior and he realizes that. And so he holds that child in his arms. And he says, I have seen your salvation. You know, people don't like to talk about the wrath of God anymore. They don't like to talk about hell. They don't like to talk about the, his perfect holiness and our sinfulness. And that we are totally lost. There's nothing we can do. We are bound to hell. We are condemned and there's nothing that we can do to fix it. We don't like to talk about that, but brothers and sisters, you're not going to understand the value of the treasure that Simeon holds in his hand unless you understand the desperation of your situation. If you understand how condemned you are, then the treasure that saves you from that condemnation will be the most, the most a precious thing that you own. And it certainly was precious to Simeon. It is the advent of salvation. Now, I want to tell you one, one time again. I just want to drive this home. What did Simeon have that was different than anyone else in that courtyard, the court of the temple? Of all the people there... There's three people who know who Jesus is, Joseph, Mary, and Simeon. Simeon was told by the Holy Spirit. What did he have that no one else had? No one else recognizes the Christ. No one else has that gift to where I can look at this baby boy and I can say, my eyes have seen your salvation. What was special about Simeon? Nothing. He didn't, it wasn't because he was a better person than everyone else. It wasn't because he was righteous or devout. It was because of the Holy Spirit changing his heart and the glory of God shining in a fallen, wretched soul that he knew that this was his salvation. Brothers and sisters, that's the greatest gift that any of us can ever, ever have. That is the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. Is recognition, knowing who Jesus is, reading the scripture, and understanding the gospel. You didn't get that on your own. That didn't come because you're a smarter person than anyone else. It came because you have been blessed. It's mercy. It's the grace of God. It's the glory of God flowing into your soul and changing it so that you can understand the words of the gospel. And so, therefore, that's the beauty of him looking at that child and saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. 
He goes on and finishes the thought by saying that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Notice that Simeon gives credit where credit's due. Notice who is in the driver's seat. He's talking to God that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Now, that's kind of an extraordinary statement by this man considering where he is. I know for us it's not that extraordinary, but it really is where he is and, 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 and the climate of that day. As far as the Jews of that day were concerned, there's two types of people in the world. There's the Jews, and then there's everyone else. And everyone else were considered to be the Gentiles. They were pagan. They were idol worshipers. They were uh, immoral. They were hedonists. They, they, everything that was wrong with the world was focused on the Gentiles. And so therefore, to stand in the temple and say, now in the presence of all peoples, you are bringing your salvation? That's radical talk. That certainly would not have been appreciated in, in that sense when he says that. However, if he just simply go, go back to the Old Testament, this is what Isaiah said, for instance. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The visions or the images we get of the church triumphant, the church as it exists in heaven, John uses a fourfold designation over and over again in the book of Revelation. It goes something like this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That means that there's an expanded focus in the kingdom of heaven. That means that it's not going to just be the Jews anymore. It speaks of a universal nature of the kingdom, but not universal in the sense that everyone gets saved because we know that's not true. But now, rather than the Jews being the chosen, elected people of God, as they were in the Old Testament, now that salvation is going to be opened up to all people, tribes, languages, ethnicities, races, the difference between people completely meld when Jesus is in the middle. Because he is the glue that holds us together. And that is exactly what um, Simeon is bringing out when he makes that statement. Well, he goes on um, uh, to in the 32nd verse. To say, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. There's a closeness between the light and the glory that is going to be shown. And there's a tension that continues between the Gentiles and the people of Israel. But Simeon is including both of them in this glorious uh, uh, a visitation of God. First of all, the light. And you know that Scripture speaks constantly of the salvation, the coming of Christ as light piercing the darkness. That's what the angels told us when they came down, that the light has pierced the darkness, and you could find him in a manger in Bethlehem. Um, Isaiah put it this way, but I'm going to read it from Matthew because this is what, how he was describing the ministry of the Christ. The people dwelling in darkness have 
have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's almost exactly what Zechariah said in the Benedictus, that the dawn from on high has come upon us. The light has pierced the darkness and come into shine on the, with glory on our souls. Now, he goes on to say that it was the glory of your people Israel. Well, glory speaks of that, that radiance, that eminence of God, where you, you, you see the Shekinah, the same Shekinah that, that flowed and shone around the angels when they came. But in this particular sense, the glory of God is the child in Simeon's arms. Simeon's treasure is the glory of God. And he, as Hebrews says, is the radiance of God's glory. Now, the reason that he says the glory of the people of Israel is because it was through the Messianic community, through the people of Israel, through his chosen people in the Old Testament, that the glory of God would enter space and time. Because, after all, both um, Joseph and Mary were Hebrews. And so, therefore, it is through that glory. Um, and once again, we continue to see that there is this tension that is existing. It has to be tension because, as I said, their old uh, Simeon is in the temple saying that now the light is going to shine on the Gentiles. And the light would pierce the darkness in which they lived. And that, brothers and sisters, would have been quite an unpopular um, uh, a way of looking at things. Now, the reason that I, uh, I cut this is because I wanted to spend more time on the song. I was going to go in and talk about what Simeon had to say to Mary. It turns dark. The first shadow in Luke, it comes in the next um, statement that he says, speaking specifically to Mary. We'll wait until next week and, and get there. I want to spend some time on this song. And I'll try to go through it um, and tell you what some of the pieces are. But just sit back. This is not going to take too long, I promise you. Uh, I'm not starting a new sermon here. But I want to read it for you once again, just all the way through. And then I want to tell you what I'm actually keying on. Lord, now, you're, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, I want to pull some words out of that and kind of make the case that God's entire plan of redemption is wrapped up in this song. I want to pull out the word Lord, the word now, the word servant, the word depart, the word peace, salvation, light, glory, Gentiles, and Israel. You put those words together and you have got redemptive history as it is consummated in Christ. First two words as we've already discussed are Lord and slave. Despota and slave. And that's the relationship that exists whether you know it or not. Whether you accept that 
whether you live your life as if you are the property of an all-powerful, sovereign God who is perfect in his holiness and righteousness doesn't change the fact that he is. He is despota. No one questions his will. No one is above him. No one changes. He is God and there is no other. Simeon recognized that. Whether you like to think of it or not, you're a slave to that God. He owns you. He created you. He made you. Now here's the problem that exists in, in, in every single one of our lives. Is that we run. You, you see, regard, even though he is despota, even though he is all-powerful, absolutely sovereign and supreme, we turn from him. We run into the darkness. We sell our souls to the taskmasters of this world. And we consider other things to be more important, more valuable, of a greater treasure than a relationship with the one who made us. Now, if you think about that God, just, righteous, and compassionate, you have to realize if you become a runaway slave, there's going to be consequences. And if you sin against an eternal God, there are eternal consequences. And so therefore, because of the nature of God and the nature of what we do, which is to defy him, to rebel against him, to refuse to keep his commandments, to run from him, to sell our hearts to the things of this world and abide in a commune full of runaway slaves. That's who we are. We are runaway slaves. That's the bad news. The good news is three words that he uses here. Light, glory, and salvation. Because even though that despota, that God should condemn us, even though every single one of us deserves the condemnation that is upon us, the curse that is upon us, that despota in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, and his compassion to have you as his own, to be reconciled with you, he sent the light of heaven into this darkness to pierce the darkness so that salvation could be won through him. That's what he did when he sent his son. It was for our benefit so that we could be forgiven from our sins. That's the reason he sends his glory to shine upon the souls of unbelievers, to turn that soul into a regenerated soul that is capable of loving God. Now, brothers and sisters, if you understand the first part of this, the depth of your depravity, the the condemnation that you are on, under, then you will understand how valuable Simeon's treasure actually is. Unless you do understand the, the nature of your own sinfulness, you won't. It, it'll be very nice. Thank you for saving me, Lord. That's all real good. But you're not going to be looking at that salvation the way that Simeon does. Because after all, that is the treasure. The treasure, brothers and sisters, is forgiveness. Sins that you could not possibly work off. You couldn't work one sin off against a holy and an eternal God. Much less the multitude that you do every single day. And I do as well. We could not work one single one of them off. And however, the treasure is wrapped up 
in forgiveness. The treasure is wrapped up in atonement. When the treasure came, that atonement simply means you were ransomed, you were bought back, that you were given a new lease on life, propitiation to cover your sins as if they never happened, expiation to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. No baggage in this kingdom. All of it is gone because of the work of a compassionate God. The treasure is justification. You know what justification means? Justification means that you are declared guiltless forever. No sins. A sinless situation. And you are justified. That's the declaration. And that's what the Son came to do is to justify you. And that is the treasure that we are talking about. After justification comes righteousness. Because the forgiveness and the atonement and the justification removes your sin. But Jesus led a perfect life so that he could impute to you his perfect righteousness. Hugely important if you're going to understand what the totality of this is. The treasure is resurrection. Jesus said that the grave's not going to hold you any more than it held him. That you are going to be lifted from that grave and you will be with him for an eternity in heaven. This life is not all there is. And when you leave this life, you're not leaving forever. You are leaving and going into a much better, a much more glorious situation because of a resurrection that he has granted you because of the light that he has sent. The treasure is reconciliation. Reconciliation with that despota. Reconciliation with a God who is perfect and holy and demands perfection and holiness out of you, not your own righteousness. You had nothing to do with it. But the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. The treasure is glorification. You know what that means? That means you're given new bodies. This body that continues to sin and fight against the things that are holy, that gets sick, that suffers, that has pain. That body's gone, and your body is glorified so that it is perfect in the eyes of God. You don't sin anymore. You can't sin with a glorified body. The treasure is all of these things put together, and you put your, your hands around it, and you call it salvation. You see, that's what Simeon is saying when he looks in that child's eyes. My eyes have seen your salvation. My forgiveness, my, um, uh, my justification, my atonement, my righteousness, my resurrection, my reconciliation, my glorification, all of that is wrapped up in my salvation. You don't understand the first part. You're not going to appreciate the second part. Well, he goes on and uses two, three more words. He says, now. He says, depart. And he says, peace. I want you to notice that when Simeon says that, he's talking about departing from life into death. He's excited because he's going to die. He's happy. Now, my eye, now I can die in peace. Now I can leave this life in peace. But let's not miss the fact of what 
the despota did. The despota says, now you can. I grant you that leaving. There's a coming and there's a going. There's a coming of Christ and there's a going of his sin. There's a coming of Christ and there's a leaving of Simeon. Simeon went from life into death. Brothers and sisters, you go from death into life because of the light that is shown upon you. It is death into life that occurs. God releases you. He cleanses you. He frees you. Jesus said we're all slaves to sin. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. But then he went on to say, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. So there's no baggage here, folks. Everything is left behind including whatever you consider to be treasure right now, is all left behind. Wouldn't you rather it be your sinfulness, your, your, your condemnation to be left behind as you pass from death into life? You pass from death into life when you accept Jesus as your Savior. No longer are you a slave when you go in peace, shalom, reconciliation with God. He says, no longer are you a slave now you are a child of God. Now you are my adopted children. Come into my pleasure, the blessing of your Lord. Two last words. I want to bring these out, then I'll let you go. Jews, Gentiles, people of Israel, Gentiles, tension between them. We know that what Simeon is doing is broadening expansively, but I want to use it a little bit different way this morning. Because, after all, as I said, the Gentiles represented everything that was profane and defiled. They were the idol worshipers. They were the sexually immoral. They were the ones who defied God and knew nothing about him and ate all kinds of wrong things. The Jews had a great tension with the, the Gentiles. But what I want you to see this morning is that didn't make a bit of difference. Because the mercy and grace of God is so deep and so complete, it doesn't matter what kind of life you have lived before that. When he frees you, you're free. And all of the past wickedness, I see way too many Christians carrying around the baggage of their prior life. That's been cut off from you by the Lord. He died for those sins. And it's gone. It's done. Leave them behind. And there is no sin so heinous. No life so horrible. There is nothing that you can do in this life that would block you from the grace and mercy of God. Because it is greater than anything that we can do, any sin. So, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I implore you how foolish it is to put your trust in some other kind of treasure treasure you're all going to leave behind here. You're not going to take anything with you. The treasure that dies with you, that, that, that is going to end with this world. I offer you, on the authority of Scripture, I'm able to do that, I offer you the riches of heaven as an adopted son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ, placing your faith and your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, not in some, you know, flippant way, but a whole, total, complete life change. Put your trust and your faith in him, and you are adopted so that you can call this despota 
Abba, Father, and be his son or his daughter. But if you're a believer, which most of you are, if you understand the blessing and the treasure that you have, how can you live for the treasure of this world? How can that be your focus? How can you pursue the things of a world that you know is going to be destroyed and you know as well as anyone you're not going to be able to take with you? Why do you spend your time pursuing the things of this world instead of the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? So I just leave you with, and I've said it before, if I were to have a life first, it would be this one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of this we just talked about will be added unto you. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we're in your debt eternally. We are so thankful to a God who loves us to the degree that you do, that you would send your son, place him under his own law, allow him to be mocked and beaten and put on a cross to atone for our sins, to forgive our sins, to justify us, to apply his righteousness to us so that we can look forward to a resurrection and reconciliation with you. Lord, thank you for salvation. We have not looked upon the eyes of the baby as Simeon did, but we have seen you in your gospel. We have seen you in your word. We have seen you in these words that transform our hearts. And we thank you for that blessing. And we thank you for the treasure that it represents. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.